Romans 2, verses 6 through 11. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. In these verses, Paul continues his proofs to show why every person is in a state of sin, is helpless to change himself, and is condemned under the wrath of God. The bad news serves the good news, showing how God's grace can be applied to all, to save anyone from judgment and wrath. But for today, from these verses, the Apostle Paul has to unsettle those who are trusting in themselves, those who are trusting in their own profession of goodness, and those who would count on having the right kind of relationships, the right ancestry to settle accounts with God. If someone were to say to the apostle, I'm a child of Abraham, a direct descendant, therefore I avoid God's wrath, Paul would answer, you think that God judges on the privileges of race and ancestry or privilege, and you conclude that as descendants of Abraham, you're righteous, but in reality, you have a lot to worry about because God judges all people, Jew and Gentile, based on works. Now that statement should raise some questions, maybe even raise some eyebrows among those who are well-trained in the gospel. Aren't sinners saved by grace without regard to their performance, law-keeping, or works? We feel sure that this is so. And if it is so, is this a lapse in the apostles' writings that teach legalism, or what we might call gnomism, which just means salvation by law-keeping, why does he write this astonishing thing that seems to segregate people into the two kinds of the good and the bad on the basis of works? Well, it's true. The fundamental grounds of judgment are works. God will reward the good and punish the wicked. How can we understand this? Well, this morning, let's take this in two parts. First, uh, the reward according to works, the blessing for good works, and then punishment according to works. And after each section, we'll analyze what we learned. So first, rewarding the good and some analysis, and then punishing the wicked and some analysis. And in all, we'll hear how this relates to the good news of God's free grace. First, there is reward according to works. Reward according to works. Verse 6 says, He will render to each one according to his works. Perhaps the best way to understand this is to see that in verse 5, Paul anticipates the day of wrath. Verse 5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent, that's an unrepentant, heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath 
when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You may recall he is talking to the hypocrite who judges others but makes excuses for himself even though he also breaks the law. And it seems to many people then and now that God doesn't punish them right away and since God's not punishing right away that God must be accepting them as they are. But in reality what's happening according to the scripture is that God is delaying judgment because of his own kindness, forbearance, and patience as Paul said in verse 4. Now there are some who may begin to taste judgment this side of eternity, that's true enough. But others will seem to prosper and escape in this life. Their early ease, however, doesn't mean that they escaped wrath. It means they stored up wrath. And someday the righteous judgment, when that begins at the day of Christ, all that stored up wrath will be brought out of storage and the unsaved sinner will pay. Notice that judgment, this repayment, is universal to each one. To each one God will render. Not a single one gets a different criterion. And what is the criterion? Works. It's according to his works. And then notice that the payout is absolutely certain. God will render. That's a recompense, a repayment, an exact compensation. The equivalent amount of wrath for the sins committed. An equivalent amount of reward for good works. Now, if talking about reward or punishment for works is troubling, consider that this is not the only scripture that speaks this way. Consider Ecclesiastes 12 that says, The end of the matter is this, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Then there's Matthew 16. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. John 5, those who are in the tombs will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Ephesians 6 knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. So you see, there's a very clear expectation about the doing of good or of evil works as the basis for judgment. There's reward according to works, and therefore we're not surprised by how Paul next describes the reward of blessing for the good works. There's blessing for good works. No surprise there. And he says this particularly in verse 7, to those who by patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. What can you say about the just? Well, notice, first of all, their patience. Patience is endurance. It's perseverance. In the simplest sense, perseverance is keeping at it from beginning to end. 
without going back. Um, you could say it's finishing the course. Usually we talk about perseverance as continuing in the Christian walk of faith until death or until the coming of Christ, whichever comes first. In Hebrews 3.14, it is said, we are made partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence firm until the end. When Christ told his disciples about coming persecution, he said in Matthew 24.13, he who endures to the end will be saved. So holding fast to the end is perseverance, and this verse says it's accompanied by good works. Secondly, notice their desire. The just seek. It's a defining trait, something they do characteristically. Those who do good works aspire after the dignity and honor of eternal life, which are the rewards for good works. And what is this reward more particularly? There is glory, which is the transformation out of this corruptible body into an incorruptible, glorious body, along with complete purification from sin, the completion of holiness. And then there is honor. That is having God give his approval. If there's a crown of life, it's receiving it. If there's a crown of righteousness, it's having God bestow it. Honor is receiving one's laurels. Uh, laurels being the crown that an Olympic athlete would receive when he had won the event. Or, or the laurels were bestowed on a poet or a hero for their accomplishments. So there's a reward of honor. And then there is immortality, better translated incorruption which speaks of life and the resurrection. If you ever desire to live in the new heavens and the new earth, if your heart ever longs for it, where there's no crying or death or pain because all that old misery of this earth has passed away, you're longing for incorruption, the resurrection life. Eternal life has these qualities. Well, now we come to some analysis. Let's devote some time to understanding the implications of what was just said. And we should start by noticing the importance of that seeking that Paul has mentioned. Verse 7 commends whoever seeks those noble things. And in the next verse, verse 8, we also find seeking except that these are the wicked who are self-seeking or contentious. They have selfish ambition. So to seek in one direction is clearly commendable. To seek in the other direction is clearly condemned. One good, the other evil. Which direction are you taking this morning? Which of these two kinds of seeking will you practice when you get home? And when you get up on Monday, what kind of seeking will you do? And if you answer seeking what is right and good, that is wonderful. But then I must also ask you if you always, without fail, throughout all of your life, have sought for what is good. And if not, it might worry you that those works, those, that ungodly seeking, that selfish ambition seeking, is due God's wrath and fury. Now this question must be answered. Why are good works here at all? As Bible-believing Christians, we often affirm that we know we're not judged by our works, but rather by obedience to the gospel. So, For example, many of you might be uncomfortable right now with the statement I made that people are judged by their works. 
you may be much more comfortable with what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, how the Lord will inflict judgment on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You may find that much more comforting to think, okay, I believe the gospel and so I'm not to be judged by my works. Is Paul contradicting himself here? And the truth is he is upholding a universal principle. He is not at all belittling the doctrine of judgment according to works. He is showing the dignity of good works in seeking eternal life and blessedness. In fact, Paul's whole tone here is is as if to say, this is a valid principle no matter what. It's part of God's truth since the world began. And when the revelation of God's righteous judgment is displayed, it will in no wise counteract this principle. It's a divine rule, worthy of acceptance. It has to be taken into consideration whenever we talk about the true religion. And some of you recognize this principle of works-based reward as the requirement of the covenant of works. Do this and you shall live. And to press this point more strongly, if any person satisfied the conditions of the law, By doing good, he would get the promised rewards and eternal life. One reason the principle of judgment according to works is here is that even before Paul begins to unpack the gospel in the rest of Romans, even while he is condemning wickedness of all kinds, this principle is going to get taken up in the good news, and so he has to bring it. It's as if he is straining all kinds of ideas through a net to trap only the true. The useless ones get swept through, but one is big and important enough to stick, and it's good works, and good works count. According to them, or lack of them, will one be judged. Importantly, so importantly, Paul believed that while being the defender and the protector of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. And I think it has to be said that one other reason why Paul says this is because when God converted him on the Damascus road and began teaching him the truth, Paul himself had to unlearn what he always thought about gaining righteousness in the old way of his legalistic Phariseeism. The Pharisee in Paul had to die along with his motive for seeking salvation by works of the law. God had to show Paul that his, this works to reward principle, this principle of works to reward, though it was true, was absolutely incompatible with the motives of his heart while practicing the religion of his fathers. They could not be harmonized. Why? Because in his heart, his motive was to make himself supreme in getting righteousness. To put it in more common language, it was, his motive was to get the glory for obtaining righteousness for himself. And what God taught, God taught him through his conversion was that doing good works... The seeking for glory, honor, and immortality was right, but the motive matters, and the motive has to be making God supreme or giving glory to God. And that leads me to ask you, are you in the faith for your own sake or for God's sake? 
Are you a worshiper, a Bible reader, a prayerful person, a professor of Christ from a God-centered desire that God be first in all things, that God be the one who supplies and grants you the righteousness worthy of eternal life and glory, or do you do good works, live as a Christian to put self first, to glorify self? It's the internal heart difference between Paul is a Pharisee, and Paul is a Christian. The motive of every true believer must be God's glory, the supremacy of God in all righteousness. There is yet another reason why good works are here. Because the works to reward principle is there to demonstrate that God is always a righteous judge. Galatians 6 says, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The principle always holds for God's majesty in being a judge. His majesty in judgment is not to be undermined by the clever tricks of sinful men. God is interested in moral recompense according to works, because if ever he were not, if ever he played favorites with people, it would attack his sovereignty. People would mock him. They would scorn and laugh and say, well, so-and-so got away with their sin. Some sins somewhere were never punished, and so God must be an unjust judge. Well, I can tell you, nobody in hell is laughing at God. No one there thinks that God's law was all talk and no justice. But his justice is supreme, and that's why verse 6 confirms for us, he will render to each one according to his works for good works we, he repays with blessing. And now that's a good place to transition <clears throat> to talk about the works of the wicked. If there are, is a reward of blessing for good works, there is also punishment according to works for the wicked. Verse 8 says this, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. If blessing for the just, there is punishment for the wicked. Notice their desire. I mentioned it already, but verse 8 says, but for those who are self-seeking. The word strongly emphasizes that, emphasizes that they are in revolt against God. And then notice their disobedience. They do not obey the truth. Uh, Paul says that everybody knows truth. The Gentiles know truth from nature and conscience, from the way God made the world, or whether as Jews they know it from the scriptures, which is a great deal more truth. In the first instance, truth is found in the natural law that people know, because Gentiles by nature do what the law requires. They're a law to themselves, and they show the law written in their hearts. In the second instance, for the Jews, they are privileged to have the revealed word. And then they had the privilege of God coming himself to live among them, the very truth and the way to the Father came and dwelt among them. Remember what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And you remember that before Pontius Pilate, he said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And yet most Jews of Paul's day, like many today, do not obey the voice of the Lord Jesus. That is their 
disobedience. They're disobedient to truth, but they're also obedient to something. Notice their obedience. They do obey unrighteousness. It tells you that truth and righteousness go together. The more truth a person possesses and practices, the more righteous he will be. Those who are insubordinate to the truth are subordinate to unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is a principle that can be obeyed. And as a consequence, what's their reward? Wrath and fury. On the day of wrath, God's patience will run out. His forbearance will be exhausted. His kindness toward the wicked will cease. Today, friends, is the day of kindness. Therefore, today is the day to close with Christ, to repent of sins, and to return to God. Someday that time is over, that time is up. At the very least, that will happen to us all in our deaths. For how we die, whether we die in Christ or outside of Christ, is how we're going to stay for all eternity. Remember that verse in Revelation 22, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Today counts, because someday God's patience will dry up. If you die outside of Christ, you'll be lost for an eternity. So wrath is the punishment for the self-seeking. What then is fury? Well, fury is indignation. It is the violent aspect of the wrath. It it speaks of displeasure. Imagine feeling someone's hot displeasure on yourself for eternity. And just to clarify, all this punishment is according to works because verse 9 says there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Wicked people will be judged by their works. Now let's analyze these things. Let's do that. First a question. Can anyone obtain eternal life by good works? The answer, in essential fact, is yes. But it is a question that has to be qualified with yet another question. And that question is, does anyone, in fact, keep the law? Does anyone do these good works? That's what good works are. They are keeping the law of God while disobedience to the truth is breaking the law. And this is Paul's point for writing this. The Jew thought, perhaps because of his ancestry, his status as a child of Abraham, that that would be the basis for judgment. If so, well and good. He's going to be justified and go to heaven. But not so. Not so. God judges on works, and here's the truth, no one keeps the law. And that, of course, is true for the Gentile also. Nobody, in point of fact, keeps God's law. And many of you will sense that Paul is foreshadowing the scriptures in chapter 3 where he states there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one does good. Again, no one keeps the law. So the truth that every doer of good works will be blessed is no comfort to us because we haven't done them. The judgment of God on the basis of works should frighten everyone trusting their own goodness. For what we see if we compare to the law is that we have all done evil. And what are you left with then? 
where you're left looking for someone who's seeking of glory, honor, immortality, showed a lifetime perseverance in good works, in love for God while obeying Him completely. You're left looking for someone whom God can reward according to His works, who can merit the eternal life, that earned reward. We look for someone who is a doer of the law, For the Bible says, not the hearers, but the doers of the law will be justified. Romans 2.13 And friends, if the Bible is about the salvation of sinners, if it's about keeping sinners safe from God's wrath on that day, we expect to find even one example of a law keeper. Because keeping the law, according to our text, is that great vindicating principle for safety and judgment. If you were charged with a crime, you would want the jury to vindicate you. You would want them to say not guilty. In other words, you kept the law. You're vindicated. Since none of us can say that, none of us can say we're righteous through keeping the law, and yet the Bible says God is a Savior. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me, Isaiah 45. So the message is that God has provided a righteousness for us in the law, keeping obedience of His Son. God's method of saving us is giving us a righteousness based not on our obedience, but on Christ's obedience. From the point of view of our contribution, this righteousness is apart from the law, its demands or works. Praise God for that. Now you say, what am I going to do with this information? The Bible's answer is faith in Jesus Christ. It's believing on Him to receive His obedient, righteous law-keeping as if it were your own. Uh, Friend, this is a legal matter. It's a declared judgment from God. It's a word from the judge that the law now regards you in Christ as righteous because God has applied His meritorious obedience to you. Faith in Christ is as if you had kept the law. I urge you to trust this righteousness. I urge you to trust that this alone will come between you and God's wrath on the day of wrath. If not, you'll die without the reward for well-doing. And whatever you might say about yourself, what 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 else other people might say about you, your life on that day will have been judged to have been a life of self-seeking of obeying unrighteousness and not obeying the truth, therefore you'll have to expect only wrath and fury. But if you seek for glory, honor, immortality, and eternal life, you must seek it in Christ alone. You must seek the glory that comes from God and seek it in a way that puts God's glory as supreme. Beloved, we must all die to this idea that we might have some goodness in ourselves that God will approve. And we must rely wholly on Christ as the one God approves. I know I'm saying many of the same things. I hope it does not sound repetitive. It's so important. You must seek for the honor that rewards you on the merits of another. Then you'll be safe in the judgment of God. I want to spend the last minutes of our time cautioning you about a very plausible-sounding error that is deadly, an error in understanding God's judgment. This error can sound true, but in reality it is self-seeking. 
The basic form it takes is saying that God justifies sinners partly on the basis of grace in Christ and partly on their own good works. Uh, Their own good works complement and increase their justification. So it says good works merit more grace. It's easy to see how we any of us could slip into viewing Christ as the entry-level way onto the path of salvation while going the rest of the journey is the self-effort of, of good works. And if that were true, you would see that the good works have merit before God. Where before we said the Bible teaches only Christ's good works have merit because only he was sinless. There's a great difference, there's a night and day difference between ascribing some merit to the sinner and no merit at all. These are different faiths. Uh, The object of faith is completely different. Uh, That error is exactly the error that the reformers had to confront in the church of their own day. If you are wondering what an important difference between Roman Catholic teaching and Reformed teaching is, this is it. I'm not the only one, I don't mean that, but this is one. Whose good works merit justification or righteousness before God in this life and the final judgment? What commends us to God? Rome says, faith plus your own works. The Reformed Church, on the basis of the Bible, says faith in Christ's good works alone. There are some also in Reformed churches who teach a kind of covenantal gnomism. I said that word in the introduction, and it just means law or law-keeping. And they also say faith in Christ gets you into the covenant of grace, but then staying in and having salvation at the end is a matter of earning your way. You could actually be ejected from the covenant of grace. And just to press home that law-keeping within the covenant community has no meritorious value either. If you look down at verse 12, you will see, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So he's talking about Gentiles. And then he talks about those in the covenant community. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Again, all have sinned. And the Jew cannot expect his covenant circumstances, his knowledge, his circumcision, or any of it, to give him the least help before God. The Jews have nothing to boast of and need the same Savior. Absolutely no one can be in the covenant family of God on the basis of his or her own righteousness. Paul knew that. He saw it among his Jewish brethren. They were in the church externally and formally, but by their self-seeking, they desired inclusion in the covenant on the basis of the law, and they were not really in the covenant. They had not tasted grace. I bring this up because it is a serious, serious problem. Anytime we put our good works forward as a means of justification, we're rejecting the grace of God in the gospel. And in such a person, you can expect to find what Paul found in the Pharisees. They were ungracious towards sinners. They had misinterpreted God's word, and they rejected and hated both Christ and God's people. You can understand from the same self-righteousness why Rome was keen to keep the scriptures out of the hands of common people. The Jesus of the scriptures was not a Jesus they liked. It's always true that in the final analysis, the self-righteous hate God. 
So false teaching like gnomism could happen in any church, and that's why I warn you against it. Well, the scripture, strange as it may seem at first, leads us here that Christ's obedient life, his death and resurrection, these were God's plan for his people. The Savior's accomplishments count as their accomplishments, and his righteous good works as theirs as if they had performed them. And that's why believers can say, believers in Christ can say with absolute certainty, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is good news, and I hope you see it too. Let's bow to pray to God.